Welcome to another episode of American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, and lore of America's past. The show is hosted by Cody Beck and Troy Taylor, and we are continuing our third season, which we call Murdered in Their Beds. If you're tuning into the podcast for the first time, we recommend going back to episode 36 and start the new season from there. It's the first part in this series and marks the beginning of the transient butcher's reign of terror in the Midwest of the early 1900s. Each episode will not only explore the killer's horrific crimes, but will explore the effect he had on the small railroad towns of the region, especially the town of Villisca, Iowa. So alert the media, raise money at your town hall rally, try not to beat up any prisoners at the police station, and get ready for the next slam-bang episode of Murdered in Their Beds. On April 6, 1917, America went to war. The United States was finally joining its allies on the battlefields of Europe. Villisca's own Company B had already been activated over the past winter and sent to Texas to guard the Mexican border against Pancho Villa, but it was clear they'd soon be much further from home. But fighting was not confined to the war. There was plenty of conflict to go around Villisca, Red Oak, and the rest of Montgomery County and every bit of it had to do with a five-year-old murder case and the man who some believed had gotten away with the killing, Frank Jones. It seemed that everywhere folks gathered, there were arguments and debates over the more Stillinger murders. Some turned into fistfights, and one argument at the Villisca train station escalated into a gun battle. Luckily, they were bad shots, and no one was hurt. The slander trial in late 1916 had reignited public interest in the murders, even though it had never really gone away, and Burns detective James Wilkerson used that to his advantage. He continued to hold public meetings, during which he railed against Frank Jones and made pleas for money like a tent show revival preacher. The once small meetings had blown up into huge public events that were widely advertised. There wasn't much else to do during an Iowa winter, so people went to see the increasingly charismatic speaker. Most of the early 1917 meetings were about an unpaid investigative bill for $2,800. The Burns Agency wanted the county to pay the tab, but the Board of Supervisors disagreed. The original agreement with the agency was with the family of the victims. The reward fund had paid some, and the state had paid some, but everyone had had enough with paying. After Wilkerson accused the Attorney General of being paid off to protect Frank Jones, state funding also came to an end. The Burns Agency kept submitting bills, but no one wanted to pay them. While Wilkerson's supporters hoped to pressure the county to pay the bill, Wilkerson himself didn't care who paid the money as long as he got his share. He told the crowds who came to his meetings that if the bill didn't get paid, his investigation would end and that, of course, no justice would be found for the victims. On January 10th, he held a meeting at the Beardsley Theater in Red Oak. The theater held 1,200 people and it was packed. Many of those who attended had a genuine concern about the bill and wanted to see it paid. The majority, though, were curiosity seekers who read about the goings-on at the slander trial and wanted to see Wilkerson for themselves. Wilkerson spoke at great length about the grand jury proceedings in the slander trial, of the great trust he put in the citizens of Montgomery County, and how he hoped they would allow him to continue his work to see that justice was accomplished. He wasn't looking for money. He assured them only the truth. 
Wilkerson's statements would have been almost comical based on his lies, concoctions, and bribed witnesses if so many people didn't believe in him. He even shamelessly convinced an accomplice to get up during the meeting and shout that he'd pledge all his money to Wilkerson's crusade. The ploy worked. More than 50 people committed to paying the Burns Agency bill if the county refused to do so. The Board of Supervisors met about the matter on January 22nd, and Frank Jones was at the meeting and was allowed to address the board. This was probably one of the lowest points in his life. His political career had been ruined, and he was the subject of rumor and scandal, but no one would have known it to look at him. On the surface, he was cool, calm, and collected. His businesses were still going strong. He'd undoubtedly lost some of his implement and bank customers in recent months, and yet he remained one of the wealthiest men in the county. This was one of the things that Wilkerson tried to use against him. He gained support for his crusade against Jones by exploiting class warfare. Take a look at the wealthy senator, he said. The rich Republican who has more money than you, has a nicer house than you, has important friends and owns a bank. He can get away with murder. If it were you that was accused of such a crime, you'd be in jail. He urged his supporters to show Jones that the common people could take him down a notch. Jones tried not to let this get to him, or at least that's how it appeared, but deep down, he must have been suffering from tremendous stress. He tried to strike back with futile efforts like the slander trial because he wouldn't and, well, didn't even know how to stoop to Wilkerson's level. When Frank addressed the board, he said that if the bill to Burns was owed, then it ought to be paid. If the county had an honest obligation, it should be fulfilled. On the other hand, if it was not appropriate for the county to pay, then they should refuse. Jones said he had no problem with it either way, but that he believed that Wilkerson and the Burns Agency should not be allowed to continue the investigation. He produced letters from officials in Kansas City and elsewhere who were harshly critical of Wilkerson's methods. He said that Burns himself had recently been indicted by a grand jury for stealing valuable papers for wiretapping and dishonestly using recording devices. Sounds familiar, right? Frank asked that a fair-minded man be put in charge of the investigation and said that if this were done, he would help pay the cost himself. He'd even leave the state while the investigation was conducted, as long as Wilkerson did the same. Frank had scored some points with board members, but then, Frank Jones being Frank Jones, he took things too far. He started revealing all the personal dirt on Wilkerson that his detectives had dug up, from scandals to the fact that he was living with a woman in Villisca who was not his wife. Luckily for Frank, his attorney, R.W. Beeson, had come with him to the meeting. He took the opportunity to step in with a legal argument, stating that the county's taxpayers had never agreed to pay for the investigation, and it was unethical to expect them to do so. After more arguments, they agreed with Beeson and decided not to pay the $2,800 balance, but they admitted with red faces. Before the public meeting, they'd had a meeting with the sheriff and had already agreed to pay $700 for the investigation to continue, with James Wilkerson still in charge. They'd given their word, they said, and couldn't back out of it now. Once again, Wilkerson had bested Frank Jones, and the latter wasn't happy about it. But he did get some good news that evening. Jack Boyle, the sleazy reporter who had engineered his political downfall with Wilkerson, was in jail. He'd been picked up on drug charges in Kansas City, possession of opium. That arrest would bring an end to Jack Boyle's involvement in our story. Wilkerson was thrilled to have gotten more money for the investigation, but he knew $700 wouldn't last long. So he started planning more public meetings. On January 31st, he threw another rally at the Villisca Opera House. More than 800 people showed up on what turned out to be the coldest day of the winter. They wanted scandal and excitement, and Wilkerson was happy to give it to him. 
He complained about Frank Jones, pointed out how much richer and happier he was than those who were there, and worked the crowd for more money. He loudly proclaimed that the people of Montgomery County were some of the best people in the world, especially those who had committed to pledge funds for his continued work, of course. He called many of his biggest supporters to the stage that night, going on and on for more than two hours. He talked about his investigation and how dangerous it was. He was doing a great service for the people, he told them, but needed money to keep it going. He claimed that many people were afraid to tell what they knew about the murders publicly and would only come to him in secret. Of course, since it was not public record, he couldn't use what they told him because he was such an upstanding and honest investigator. Wilkerson was interrupted several times by applause. While he was talking, he walked off the stage and entered the audience. He continued his speech as he moved among the people, walking up one aisle, across the back of the theater, and coming back down the other. Heads turned and people stood up to see him better. They burst into applause as he came close to them. It was a tactic that would be familiar to any of today's viewers of TV talk shows. But to the people of rural Iowa in 1917, it was novel and thrilling. He shouted as he walked, mostly talking about himself, until his attentions turned to Frank Jones, when he cried out, Thy sins will find you out. The audience erupted into applause again, and Wilkerson returned to the stage. He stood at the edge of the stage in silence, letting the moments pass and making the audience strain to hear his voice as they waited in anticipation of his next words. Finally, he spoke. He said that he had been asked why he couldn't continue the investigation without money, and his answer, he said, was, why doesn't the bank loan money without interest? Wilkerson said he needed money because he had several mouths to feed, but if I was pursuing this for money alone, I would have quit this job a long time ago. I would not be out of a job if I left this case at once. The Burns people have not received as much money with this case as they've put into it. He needed their moral support to succeed in solving the case, he told the audience, but he needed their financial support to get the killer off the streets of their community. Wilkerson received another ovation from the crowd, and then R.B. Smith, the Villisca dentist who was firmly in Wilkerson's camp, jumped to his feet. He was overwhelmed by the excitement of the evening, or, well, more likely, he had been coached to stoke the fever pitch of the evening. The dentist waved his arms as he turned to face the audience. He shouted, We've lived in this reign of terror long enough. It's time, by gosh, to raise the money to get after this thing, by gosh. Let's get busy and raise the money. Wilkerson left the stage at this point saying that he would, quote, leave the rest of the meeting to the people. And like a faith-healing minister who'd successfully gotten a man to rise up out of his wheelchair and walk, he withdrew from the theater to cheers and applause while his flunkies passed the hat. Before everyone left that night, Wilkerson had raised another $250. After leaving the adoring crowd in Villisca, Wilkerson returned to Kansas City to prepare for something that he'd hoped to avoid. He was on trial for assault. Jacob Detweiler, the local attorney who had read about William Mansfield's arrest in the newspaper and offered to defend him for no charge, filed suit against Wilkerson some months before. 
He had asked the courts for $5,000 in damages, which would be paid by the Burns Agency if Wilkerson lost. The agency hired a trio of attorneys from Kansas City led by a man named Brady for the detective's defense. The trial began on February 8, 1917, and William Mansfield was the first witness on the stand. He testified about his arrest, saying that he was told that someone wanted to see him, and then he was taken to a room where several men were waiting. He didn't know them, but the man he later learned was James Wilkerson, said to him, Hello, insane blackie. Mansfield told him that he must be mistaken, that he'd never been known by that name. Well, no one listened, and he was taken to the main city jail in downtown Kansas City. He was placed in a cell shortly after 5 p.m. on June 13, 1916. About an hour and a half later, he was taken from the cell by Captain Thomas Fleming and placed in the back seat of an automobile. Wilkerson, along with reporter Jack Boyle and a driver, accompanied Mansfield to station number four. Mansfield stated he was threatened several times during the drive, and at one point, as they crossed a river bridge, Wilkerson said, let's stop this machine and throw this son of a bitch in the river. He later threatened him again, saying, I will kill you, goddamn you, right here. I won't take the trouble to take you to trial. He then struck him hard in the ribs with his elbow. Mansfield still hadn't been told why he'd been arrested. After arriving at the station, he was placed in an interrogation room where police officers questioned him all night and into the next morning. He said that at one point, Boyle had offered to get him a drink of water, but Wilkerson told him not to. A drink of water, Wilkerson said, would steady his nerves. At some time later in the night, he was told about the murders in Villisca. Mansfield told Wilkerson that he had nothing to do with them, but Wilkerson said he was lying. If he didn't confess, the detective added he would beat the hell out of him. During the interrogation, Wilkerson also grabbed an axe, held it threateningly over Mansfield's head, and then laid it against his face and mouth, saying it would kill him in the same way that the people in Iowa had been killed. Mansfield said that Wilkerson punched and slapped him several times, but always when actual police officers were out of the room. He said that as he stood up once, Wilkerson pushed him backwards with such force that he fell over his chair, bruising his back and ribs. By the time he was finished, Mansfield maintained that he was unable to eat for three or four days because he was spitting up blood. Several of his teeth were loose. Two days later, Wilkerson beat him again. This assault occurred after Jacob Detweiler served notice to Kansas City police officials that his client was withdrawing his waiver of extradition. According to Mansfield, after Detweiler left, Wilkerson, Sheriff Jackson, and County Attorney Gillette arrived. The police broke the news to them, and Wilkerson became so angry that he struck Mansfield in the face. Mansfield said that a detective objected, stating he did not allow prisoners to be abused, and Wilkerson apologized, saying, Sorry, I was a little excited. After Mansfield was taken from the police station to the county jail, he was finally seen by a doctor. According to records, his teeth were knocked loose in the front of his mouth, his lip was split, and one side of his face and one eye was bruised. He had a pain in his back for two or three weeks and, after being taken to Red Oak, was treated by a doctor for stomach and side pain. After that, Mansfield was cross-examined by Brady, the Burns Agency attorney. He took him through his sordid biography from his desertions to the abandonment of his wife. Detweiler objected, saying that none of this had anything to do with the assault charge. But Brady said that the questions were needed to show that Mansfield wasn't credible as a witness. Brady then asked him about what he learned of his wife and daughter's deaths, accusing him of being involved, even though he'd been cleared of all charges with a solid alibi. 
Brady then took a final shot by forcing Mansfield to roll up his sleeves and show the jury his tattoos, which included a flag and a naval anchor. He also had a dagger, a dove, a broken heart, and others. Brady disparaged his patriotic tattoos, saying that since he was a deserter from two branches of the armed forces, he didn't have any right to have them. And the attorney walked away, shaking his head in disgust when Mansfield remained silent. Detweiler returned to ask more questions, establishing William's alibi and even introducing a letter from the sister of Martha Mislich, Mansfield's murdered wife, that supported William and stated that the family knew he had nothing to do with the crime. The defense argued the letter should not be admitted and that the in-laws were unable to exonerate Mansfield, a man that Brady insisted was, quote, guilty of adultery, bastardry, desertion, and non-support. The argument was a lengthy one, but in the end, the letter was not admitted. Detweiler called more witnesses, including a recovering drug addict named J.H. Barnes. He'd been in jail with Mansfield and testified that William had been badly beaten when he arrived. In addition, he stated that while he was on the streets using morphine, he knew a man called Insane Blackie. William Mansfield was not that man. Brady objected to his testimony, first stating that Barnes was not a doctor and couldn't offer a medical opinion about his condition. Detweiler explained to the judge that Barnes had not only been called to confirm the injuries that Mansfield sustained, but also to show malice. Wilkerson knew Mansfield was not insane Blackie within days of his arrest, but continued to say he was and took him to Red Oak to try to get him indicted anyway. Brady countered this argument by saying that the suit was about assault and had nothing to do with whether Mansfield was insane blackie. He also protested that Barnes was not a competent witness. He was a dope fiend and shouldn't be on the witness stand. The judge sustained part of his objection, only allowing Barnes to say that he had seen Mansfield's condition and that he had seen him spit up blood. Barnes may not have been able to offer a medical opinion, but Detweiler's next two witnesses could. Dr. Smith and Fulton had examined Mansfield at the county jail. According to their notes, Mansfield's injuries included, and this is quote from the report, right side of the face bruised and somewhat swollen, lower lip inside cut by two teeth, upper lip not cut but two upper teeth injured, bruised on right shoulder, dark in color, not swollen, painful on motion of shoulder, bruised across back and middle third, not swollen, dark in color, pain in bowels, constipated, looks bad, not nervous. Detweiler had no further questions, and Brady was unable to score any points for the defense with the two doctors. He finally gave up. Detweiler rested the plaintiff's case. The defense began by calling James Wilkerson to the stand, who, and I know you'll be shocked by this, lied about everything. He said that he was never alone with Mansfield, treated him well, gave him a big lunch and all the water he asked for. In fact, he claimed Mansfield drank so much water that at one point he told him to be careful or he'd quote, rust his constitution. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but you get the idea. He said that he absolutely never hit Mansfield or pushed him and that he never called him a son of a bitch or used any kind of profanity. Brady questioned him about every allegation that Mansfield had made, and Wilkerson denied doing anything that would be considered inappropriate. While testifying, Wilkerson managed to make it clear to the jury that he had good reason to believe that he was interrogating a brutal mass murderer, and that if he got a little rough treatment, well, hell, he deserved it. However, he continued to deny that he had abused him in any way. In the end, Wilkerson's lies didn't matter. The jury had the medical records that proved someone 
had beaten him severely. They believed that someone was James Wilkerson. They found in favor of William Mansfield and awarded him $2,500 in damages from the Burns Detective Agency. Burns later appealed to the state Supreme Court, claiming that the agency should not be held liable for Wilkerson's action, while the court again found in favor of Mansfield and the Burns Agency was forced to pay. Between the expense of the slander trial and now an assault case, Wilkerson had cost the agency a sizable amount of money. Burns was finally fed up with Agent 33, and the detective and the agency would soon part ways. As for William Mansfield, he was finally cleared of any connection to the murders. His alibi and work records had finally been accepted as the truth. Despite the accusations, he had never been suspected of using drugs, was never known as Insane Blackie, was never in Villisca, and had never met Frank Jones. In time, Mansfield put his sketchy past behind him and made another name for himself in history as a labor organizer. He spent the rest of his life working for the Packing House Workers Union and was considered an integral part of the organization. He died in the 1950s in Milwaukee, honored by the union and free of the troubles that had plagued him four decades before. And with that, William Mansfield has finally left our story. While James Wilkerson's assault trial was taking place in Kansas City, things were starting to happen in Iowa that Frank Jones's attorneys had feared would happen after the slander trial. A grand jury had been impaneled to dig deeper into the Villisca murders than anyone ever had before. Iowa Attorney General Horace Havner and Montgomery County Attorney Oscar Winstron had recently both been sworn into office and were anxious to delve into the case, and they were preparing to take Wilkerson's conspiracy theories to a grand jury. It would turn out to be one of the most volatile proceedings in the state's criminal history. It would exonerate one suspect, at least from a legal standpoint, if not in the minds of many locals, point the finger at another, and finally show James Wilkerson to be the liar and fraud that he was. The fabricated case that he'd built against Frank Jones was just about to come tumbling down. Havner and Winston joined forces for the grand jury. Havner had the authority to take over the proceedings on behalf of the state, and Winstrom welcomed his help. They both expected there to be as many as 100 witnesses called before the grand jury. Hundreds of pages of reports, letters, and depositions had to be read, studied, and analyzed. It was going to be a job for several attorneys. Winstrom knew that men would have to be hired, and he was limited to only what the Montgomery County Board of Supervisors would pay. With the state stepping into the proceedings, though, it would pay for many of the costs that would otherwise be the responsibility of the county. Winston needed Havner's help, and fortunately, the two men got along well. Havner began by hiring a special counsel named Frederick F. Favell, who had been an advisor to Attorney General George Cozen. Favell was an accomplished trial lawyer from Storm Lake and a former U.S. attorney for Iowa's Northern District. He was an excellent prosecutor and would play an important role in the grand jury proceedings in the subsequent trial. Favell began learning the case, knowing he would be there when the attorney general couldn't be present. 
He would also make many of the important decisions during the investigation that followed and worked to assemble the evidence in the criminal case that came out of the grand jury hearings. Havner had another resource that would help with the grand jury, which none of the earlier prosecutors possessed. The legislature had finally approved special investigators that were assigned full-time to his office. He no longer had to rely on the use of private detectives. These special agents worked for the state, not the county, but with Havner so deeply involved in the investigation, he had them at his command. Two of these agents, Oscar Rock and James Risden, would figure strongly in events that would later unfold and both later became directors of the Iowa Bureau of Criminal Investigation after it came into an existence. Havner and Western both desperately wanted to get to the bottom of the crime, once and for all. Both had political aspirations beyond their current offices and they wanted to make sure that everything was done correctly. For this reason, even as they prepared to present the Wilkerson conspiracy to the grand jury, they decided to take a fresh look at another suspect that had been dancing around the edge of the case since the beginning, Reverend Kelly, the strange little minister. The two men wondered why, with allegations against Kelly that included his talking on the train about the murders before they were discovered, that he'd sent a bloody shirt to the laundry a few days afterwards, and that he was a sexual pervert with an unhealthy interest in young girls, plus he'd admitted to lawmen in South Dakota he'd committed to murders, they didn't understand why their predecessors hadn't been more interested in him as a suspect. Havner and Winston managed to keep their interest in Kelly away from the press, but even as the grand jury hearings began, Havner was directing his special agents to find out more about the weird little man. Well, they were soon going to find out more than they ever really wanted to know. The grand jury proceedings began in early March 1917, and not surprisingly, problems with James Wilkerson started almost immediately. Winston had gotten to know Wilkerson through conversations with attorneys and others who had dealt with him. He also had some first-hand experiences with him during the slander trial, and he knew he would be controversial to work with. Havner had a staff that had remained from the Cozen term of office, so both men were wary of Wilkerson from the start. But they had no choice but to deal with him. His so-called dope sheet was the blueprint that had been used to build the case, and the county board of supervisors had appropriated the funds to retain him as their investigator. Still feeling uncomfortable about Wilkerson, Winston and Havner set out to call his witnesses while keeping the detective at arm's length. Predictably, Wilkerson took offense at this. The detective was a showboat and wanted to make sure that he was still front and center in the case so that he would get credit when Jones was finally indicted. With his Burns agency job now in jeopardy, he needed the notoriety of solving the Velisca case to ensure his future income. On March 7th, Wilkerson met with 15 or 20 of his most hardcore supporters at the Johnson Hotel. After the meeting, he let the press know that they had backed a guaranteed fund to retain him now that he was being ignored by the state. William Mitchell, the Council Bluffs attorney who had endeared himself to Wilkerson supporters during the slander trial, stood next to the detective when he spoke to reporters. Wilkerson allies had retained him to look out for their interests during the new grand jury proceedings and, in anticipation of the Jones indictment, they hoped to have him assist with the prosecution. Mitchell met with Havner and Judge Arthur to discuss the problem, which the problem was essentially that Wilkerson didn't like being ignored, but there was little the judge could do. He advised Havner to meet with the detectives and try to work out their differences. Havner had a short meeting with Wilkerson and the two called a temporary truce, hoping they could work together throughout the proceedings. But that truce didn't last for long. By the middle of March, it was apparent, even though the grand jury proceedings were kept secret, that everyone was in for a lengthy ordeal. 
Wilkerson had started his dope sheet well before the slander suit and had continued adding to it in preparation for the grand jury proceedings. The typed, double-spaced pages prepared by a detective who was a much better talker than a writer was a lengthy record of everyone that Wilkerson had found over a three-year period who would say anything bad about Frank Jones or who would lend credence to Wilkerson's often changing theory. But as the jurors compared the dope sheet to actual testimony given by the witnesses, they began to realize something that Havner and his agents had already discovered. That what Wilkerson said people had told him and what they actually said under oath were two very different things. The witnesses that were the most damning to Jones were, for the most part, the least credible. To believe what Vena Tompkins, Ed Landers, and Alice Willard had to say, jurors had to accept that these people had been aware of vitally important information about the murders, but had not told the authorities for years, even denying they knew anything at all, until James Wilkerson came along. And even after Wilkerson obtained their stories, those stories had a habit of changing. And one of the most often changed stories even managed to land Wilkerson in jail. During the proceedings, Alice Willard, yes, she's back, repeated her story about how she went for an automobile ride with two friends on the Saturday night before the murders. The account she told the grand jury was pretty much the same as her testimony during the slander trial. They went for a ride, the car broke down not far from the Moore house, and as they were walking down the street, they saw three men coming toward them. They hid you know, in the non-existent bushes. And the men stopped near them and had a conversation that Alice said was, quote, so degrading and vulgar, I won't repeat it. Well, she did repeat some of it, though, including new material that she'd never included before. This time, she said their conversation included a graphic account of plotting to tie a man up while they took turns mistreating his woman, after which they would, quote, perform an act of castration on him. She then testified that two other men approached and had a conversation with the first men that included the words money, closet, and the infamous get Joe first line. Just as she had at the slander trial, she said the group included Frank Jones. The grand jury could read Wilkerson's report for themselves, but his version of the story was different. According to the report, Willard had cast a different bunch of characters in the broken-down car that night. Also, in her original statement, written out by Wilkerson, she said that Albert Jones was one of the men she heard talking behind the Morehouse, not Frank. But during the Mansfield grand jury, she had not included Albert in the group. The changes were of particular interest to the prosecutors trying to judge the credibility of both Willard and Wilkerson. They had none, let's be honest. The grand jury focused on specific lines in the Wilkerson report that had Willard including Albert Jones among the conspirators. They noticed that later, after Albert and Dona had been able to establish they were in Clorinda on June 8th, the account had changed and it had become Frank Jones that she'd seen instead of Albert. Had Wilkerson misunderstood what she told him or had Willard changed her story? And if she had, did Wilkerson coach her to do so? While the get Joe first phrase was consistent in her testimony, much of the rest of it differed from Wilkerson's report. Her story could be taken as incriminating, but the inconsistencies raised very serious doubts. Wilkerson was called to the stand to try to clear things up. Favell, on behalf of the state, began a series of questions dealing with what exactly Willard did or did not say to Wilkerson in her original statement. Wilkerson could see the trap he was walking into. Either he was going to be perceived as having misunderstood Alice or deliberately misstating her, or as telling jurors she had changed her story. 
Apparently feeling that none of the options were good, he refused to answer. In fact, he refused to answer any of Favel's questions. Instead, he spoke to the jurors directly and told them that the question was intended to destroy the veracity of Alice Willard and put him in a position of perjury. He was asked to be allowed to delay answering until he could consult with his attorney, William Mitchell. Havner, who was overseeing the hearing, refused to allow the delay. Havner contacted Judge Woodruff about the legalities involved. Woodruff convened court, and the question was officially asked again. Wilkerson again refused to answer. Woodruff, irritated and not in the mood to deal with foolishness, found him in contempt of court and sentenced him to spend a day in jail. Wilkerson refused to go quietly. He told the judge that his dope sheet, which was on Havner's table, had cost him a great deal of money and time. It had been confiscated, and he wanted it back. He left the stand and made a move to grab it off the table, but Havner pulled it out of his reach and handed it to Favel. Wilkerson made another grab for the papers, and the new sheriff, recently elected to office and replacing Wilkerson's old pal, stepped between them. Banging his gavel, Judge Woodruff called for order, and Wilkerson was taken away to cell. He insisted that he be released at midnight, which was when the, quote, day in jail came to an end. Wilkerson's cronies were outraged. At midnight, about 20 of them showed up at the jail for his release, but Sheriff Dunn had told his deputies not to let him go. Judge Woodruff had stated that since the prisoner had been locked up at 4 p.m. on Saturday, he wasn't getting out until the same time on Sunday afternoon. When Wilkerson's supporters found this out, they marched over to the Johnson Hotel and roused the attorney general from bed. He initially refused to meet with them at that hour, but after they rang his room several times, he changed his mind, put on his robe, and went downstairs to meet them. The group demanded Wilkerson's release, accusing Havner of trying to whitewash the investigation and impeaching the witnesses. Havner told him that the judge had sent him to jail for one day, and that's what he meant. He was handling the grand jury so that it was fair to all parties and he would continue to do it in the way he thought best. The group grumbled, but they left. And, as Havner promised, Wilkerson remained in jail until 4 p.m. on Sunday afternoon. On Tuesday, Wilkerson was back in front of the grand jury, still refusing to answer questions about the inconsistencies. The judge offered to let him explain or he'd send him back to jail for contempt. Wilkerson gave a lengthy account about Alice Willard and what she'd told him, saying that part of the evidence was being misinterpreted. He said that he planned to explain all this to the prosecutors, but he couldn't because, well, you know, they were ignoring him. Wilkerson continued to complain and bellyache for over an hour, and when he was finished, Havner asked to make a few remarks for the record. The judge consented, and Havner said that when Wilkerson gave him the dope sheet, he said that it was correct and that he would add to it from day to day as the investigation progressed. Havner said Wilkerson had sworn before the grand jury that his account was correct and accurate, and because of his assurances, the county was spending hundreds of dollars to verify it. He said that over 125 witnesses had been heard, some traveling from Montana, North Dakota, Oklahoma, and distant parts of Iowa, and in most cases, their testimony did not match what Wilkerson had put in his dope sheet. After Havner was finished, Favel was given the opportunity to also go on record. He also had plenty to say about Wilkerson, noting that the attorneys involved as well as the grand jury had worked hard for several weeks and had more to do, all of which had been and would be accomplished with Wilkerson's instruction and assistance. He said he'd been practicing law for 24 years and knew what he was doing. Wilkerson had been given the opportunity to name witnesses who could shed light on the matter and all of them had either been or would be brought to the stand. The detective had not been required to do anything else. No matter how much he wanted to be in charge of their proceedings, they could do it without his help. 
Once the prosecutors were finished, the judge asked Wilkerson if he was now prepared to answer the question. He said he would, but he first wanted to see a transcript of the statement he had made so he could look at it and correct any errors. This effectively meant that he would take several more days to answer the question, and as it turned out in the end, he managed to delay answering it until after the grand jury was finished. The jurors had plenty of reasons to be disgusted with Wilkerson. They'd read his dope sheet, and they understood the importance of the question that was being asked about Willard's original statement. His refusal to answer the question was causing an unnecessary delay, and the jury was left to speculate about the reason. As the proceedings continued, more and more of his witnesses testified in ways that were different than in his report. Even good old Vena Tompkins didn't testify the way Wilkerson planned. Although, again, in fairness to the detective, her story had changed so many times over the past few years that it would have been nearly impossible for it to match any of her previous statements. She told the grand jury the story she told others before Wilkerson came along, that she was at the slaughterhouse picking up kindling and had overheard some conversation between three men. But now she said she heard nothing at all about plans for a murder. She didn't know any of them, she said. Wilkerson's report had her telling him that she heard the older man say it would take him a while to get the money together. But in front of the jury, she said she'd never heard this and never told Wilkerson that she had. Wilkerson also claimed she told him she overheard the men discussing a getaway, some going north and some south, but Tompkins said this wasn't true. She also allegedly told him where the men would meet to be paid for the murders, but she stated this wasn't true either. She also denied telling Wilkerson that a local police officer was fixed and that her brother Harry Whipple told her that he had a job, quote, croaking a man for a rich banker. It seemed that nearly all of Vena's statements that Wilkerson had built his case on were now being said to be untrue. Heads were likely spinning on the grand jury as other witnesses were called to the stand and were disputing the statements in the dope sheet. There were witnesses who agreed with Wilkerson's claim that Dona Jones might have been having an affair with J.B. Moore, but nothing that would confirm his claim that she was a, quote, nymphomaniac and carrying on several affairs at one time. Wilkerson listed men like Burt McCall, Frank Jones, and a man named Albert Davey as being sexually involved with Dona. One of the stories he wanted the grand jury to hear was that Albert had returned home one night and caught Davy in bed with his wife. Gossip in town said a fight had taken place and the telephone receiver had been knocked from the hook. This allowed the operator listening in on the line to hear the quarrel taking place. She heard a gunshot, the story claimed, and the bullet severed Davy's thumb. The true story was that Davy had indeed lost his thumb, but it happened when he was tangled in a rope that was attached to a horse that ran off. Another rumor claimed that Dona was having an affair with her doctor because she was seen slipping into his office through a back door. She had also been seen, Wilkerson claimed in his report, going into a farm shed with J.B. Moore. While testimony was presented about Dona's affairs, however, only the telephone operators could be called, and they could only say that Dona and J.B. spoke several times on the telephone, but that was all. If the jurors believed that an affair had taken place, they apparently felt it wasn't a motive for murder. Proceedings continued until April when the grand jury finally issued their long-awaited report. Their report turned out to be a stinging criticism of James Wilkerson and his methods, but nothing else. The grand jury did not return an indictment against Frank Jones or anyone else because the witnesses that James Wilkerson brought to them changed their stories and were unreliable. What everyone who read the report from the grand jury and the newspapers realized was that Frank Jones had finally won a major victory in the fight to clear his name. Wilkerson could always try again with additional evidence, and of course he would, but any realistic chance that he had of convicting Frank or Albert Jones had disappeared. There were still twists, turns, and unexpected events to come, but Wilkerson's reputation had been shattered. And he wouldn't be alone. 
One of the grand jurors who signed the report was Scott Smith, a Villisca hardware salesman who had supported the hiring of detectives by the state back in 1913. He had had a strong interest in the case since that time, was an outspoken juror, and subsequent events would indicate that some of his activities during the proceedings were questionable, if not illegal. But none of that was generally known until later. And neither was the fact that Frank Jones had hired a detective to report on Smith's relationship with Wilkerson. This information would not help Wilkerson's reputation, and neither would the events that immediately followed the release of the grand jury's report. His credibility was damaged even more when the grand jury convened the day after the report was printed in newspapers. The detective took the stand to answer the question that he had spent a day in jail to avoid. He was again asked about Alice Willard's testimony, and he lied, and said that everything he wrote in the dope sheet was true. The answer made little difference at that point since the jury had already dismissed Willard's story. She, along with dozens of other star witnesses, had managed to destroy the veracity of Wilkerson's dope sheet. So why bring Wilkerson back to the stand even after the grand jury had declined to indict Frank Jones? Attorney General Havner wanted the chance to put Wilkerson, the man he now strongly disliked, on the stand and embarrass him into answering a question that he didn't want to answer. After Wilkerson's last trip to the stand, the grand jury was dismissed, but not discharged. They probably knew when they left the courthouse that day that they would soon be back to hear what witnesses had to say about another suspect and hear about another investigation that had been secretly percolating for weeks. James Wilkerson had been beaten, but he was far from finished. First, he attempted to bill the County Board of Supervisors for another $595 beyond the $700 they agreed to pay. The meeting became loud and angry with many of his supporters in the audience. Next, he held another rally at the theater in Red Oak. This time, though, only about 600 people showed up. He made his usual appeal for money, but this time there was a twist. He'd lost his job with the Burns Agency because the authorities were trying to keep him from telling the truth. Or at least that's what he claimed. He told them that he had been told not to speak or he would have to leave the state. He noted that he had been put in jail for not talking and now they were threatening him with jail if he did talk. Wilkerson did say that he had an interesting revelation while in jail, however. He said that while sleeping on the iron cot in his cell, a, quote, phantom woman appeared to him, clinging to his neck. He said that he tried to push her away, asking her what she wanted from him. She replied that she'd come to kill him, but had changed her mind, and at the same time, he saw an axe on the floor of his cell. Leaving the audience to do their own dream interpretation, Wilkerson moved on to a subject that he always included, the danger involved in his valiant investigation. He vowed that he would stand by those who stood by him, quote, even by shedding blood if necessary. He would stay with the case as long as he was needed, he said, and as long as his friends wanted him to, although he might be forced to stop at any time, which was a really confusing promise to make. When Wilkerson had told his supporters that he had been warned not to hold a mass meeting, he should have told them that this was only while the grand jury was in session, although an admission of that would have made his dire warning seem much less dramatic. 
A warning against this kind of activity during grand jury proceedings was part of a piece of legislation that came to be known as the Thompson Bill, named for a Des Moines County senator who sponsored it. The bill was introduced near the end of the legislative session, about the time that the grand jury was completing their evaluation of the case against Jones, and at the request of Attorney General Havner. The bill provided that, quote, any person attempting to improperly influence, intimidate, impede, or obstruct any grand juror or other officer in a civil or criminal action or by any public speech improperly influence the administration of justice would be guilty of a felony and subject to a fine and imprisonment. And urging the passage of the bill, Senator Thompson specifically referred to Wilkerson, saying that he was slandering members of a grand jury and attacking the attorney general and prosecutors, and they were powerless to stop him. He added that many detective agencies hired unprincipled and dangerous rogues, and that innocent people were serving time in prison because of them. The bill passed, but it would only take effect if Governor William Lloyd Harding signed it. Wilkerson and a small delegation of his cronies went to Des Moines to see the governor. The detective argued that the bill violated his constitutional right to freedom of speech and would make it impossible for his investigation to continue. This seems to highlight the problem with the very nature of Wilkerson's investigation. There was no reason why he couldn't continue to investigate without harassing and threatening grand jury members and public officials. But he knew what kind of latitude the law enforcement officials would be given when it came to his meetings and his public statements. They could shut him down for almost anything, whether he followed what he believed were the rules or not. Regardless, he argued the point with the governor who heard him out and promised to study the matter closely before he made a decision. That's called political double talk. Governor Hardin did listen, and then he signed the bill into law a few days later. It was a law that Wilkerson couldn't help but break, which set the stage for more problems with the detective in the days ahead. Meanwhile, the grand jury had been, as expected, called back to work. They were soon to hear evidence they would find much more believable than the case Wilkerson had presented against Frank Jones. The new focus of the inquiry was the Reverend Lynn George Kelly, a case the grand jury liked. They'd spent weeks slogging through the confusing jumble of Wilkerson's conspiracy, but it only took four days to indict the minister. Horace Havner had every reason to keep the indictment secret, at least for a while, but Wilkerson found out about it almost right away. The detective hired by Frank Jones learned that Scott Smith, the grand jury member, had told him about it. Frank Jones had reached his limit with Wilkerson. He hated the man. He wanted to destroy him as badly as Wilkerson wanted to bring down Frank Jones. In that regard, Jones and Havner had something in common. The attorney general frequently heard from Jones, starting well before the grand jury convened, but by all appearances, he tried to keep him at a distance. In early 1917, only a few weeks after taking office, Havner responded to a letter from Jones by writing that he appreciated his offers of assistance, but he needed to independently investigate the case, quote, no matter where it went. Jones recognized the problem. He was the main suspect in a grand jury investigation, after all. But Havner's attitude changed toward the former senator after the grand jury handed down the no-credible-evidence decision. The two men began corresponding on a regular basis. In 1917, Jones's detective, who was a freelance reporter who used the name J.H. Moore, I know, I'm sorry, we really don't need another person named Moore in this story, but it is what it is. The detective went undercover among Wilkerson's circle of supporters, ingratiating himself with the leader of the group. He was to find out whatever he could, keep tabs on Wilkerson, and report back to Jones, which he did on a sporadic basis. Jones then passed on the information to Havner. 
J.H. Moore met regularly with Wilkerson and his allies and was taken into their confidence. He informed Jones that Scott Smith and Wilkerson were meeting regularly while the grand jury was in session. Moore said that he was present when Wilkerson chastised Smith for failing to indict Jones, to which Smith responded, you men had no case. Moore, who signed his letters J.H., and that's what we'll call him, told Jones that he had seen Wilkerson go to Smith's house and spend three hours there in the evening before the Kelly indictment was handed down. He returned the following night for another visit. He believed that Smith was perhaps making up for the lack of a Jones indictment by continuing to keep Wilkerson informed about the secret proceedings of the jury. As it turned out, J.H. was correct in his belief that Wilkerson knew that Kelly had been indicted. Although his motives were curious, Wilkerson immediately set out to find the minister and arrange for his legal defense. It seemed that the detective would do anything to make sure that no one else was found guilty of the crime that he believed Frank Jones had committed. Wilkerson knew about the indictment, but the general public did not. For days, the newspapers speculated on what was going on with the grand jury. They knew the grand jury had completed their work, and the reporters heard rumors that someone else had been indicted. However, no one would make a public statement about it. Havner was waiting things out, trying to keep the indictment secret while Favell prepared behind the scenes for a trial. Frank Jones wrote to Havner, telling him what his detective had found out about Wilkerson, but there was little the attorney general could do about it. Havner had more important things to worry about. He needed to find Reverend Kelly. We'll be back in two weeks with our next episode, which will include the hunt for our favorite returning pervert, Reverend Kelly, and the first of his two trials for the murder of the Moore family and the Stillinger girls. So keep your curtains closed and the lights turned off. You never know who might be peeking in your windows. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language? And I don't mean like spells or incantations to trap spirits, you weirdos. I mean like a new language that could help you start communicating with more people on this plane today. Then I need to tell you about Rosetta Stone. Look, you know the brand, you know the name. They have the expertise and a 30-year legacy, which makes them more qualified than ever to help you learn a new language today. They've helped millions of people build the fluency and confidence to speak new languages. Now, this is the part where Troy would tell me that I made some kind of grammatical error, but he's not here right now, so like, I don't know, it's like speaking tongues. Rosetta Stone focuses on speaking practice for real-life scenarios to get you ready for real conversations with real people. Or maybe you can even learn how to use some different types of Ouija boards. I don't know. Either way, Rosetta Stone can help you learn faster and retain your new language better. Honestly, Rosetta Stone really would have come in handy for season four of New Orleans because I know we butchered some of those French names and I apologize once again. Now you all know I have a nine to five job when I'm not at the podcast factory and Rosetta Stone actually helped me not make a total fool out of myself while I was in Brazil interviewing celebrities. Obrigado. And now I want to help you. So don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, American Hauntings podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Rosetta Stone, how language is learned. 
Wait, by the way, Troy, like, where do words come from? Hey, no, 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 don't, don't walk away. Oh, Troy, where do words have to have? Thanks for tuning in to the American Hauntings Podcast, the show where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. You've caught up with us in season three, which we call Murdered in Their Beds, the true story of the Midwest axe murders of the 1900s. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, and the founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. Hey, how are you today? Oh, you know, it's hot outside. It is. It's warm. Not as hot as it was. Yeah. It's not as hot as it was last weekend. Yeah, that's true. We uh, did a ghost hunt at the Mineral Springs, and it was um, oh yeah, it was brutally hot. It was <laughs> oh, man. I was in I was in Pearl's room for like ten minutes, and I was like, I'm I, gonna I gotta pass get out, out here. Now. <laughs> yeah, uh, I take it over the cold though. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah, hate being me cold. Me too. Yeah, me too. I have to agree with you there. I think I would prefer hot weather. It's easier to cool off. That's very true. Now we had fun with the Mineral Springs. It I, was. Fun. I hadn't been there for a while. I hadn't really done any events or anything. Yeah, I feel like I live there too. Yeah, so it's, <laughs> right. it's like one of those other places that I never get away from. Yeah. Right, right. And you'd be going back uh, tonight, I guess. Is that where you're doing Lizzie Borden? Yeah, yep. We got a, our our last Lizzie Borden of the summer. So nice. Another one in October, but it's fun. Yeah. Well, what else? What else you got coming up? Well, actually, when everybody hears this, tickets will have gone on sale yesterday for the fall tours in Alton and Decatur. Those were our big, uh, those are our longest running tours, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, Decatur was our very first ghost tour, uh, started back in 94. So we are, this is actually our 26th season and those tickets just went on sale and we only do those in October now. So they fill up pretty fast. So anybody who is an interest in and going up and joining it and seeing some some cool stuff, some old stuff, um, that's a great tour. And our Alton tickets for the fall went on sale too. I mean, a lot of our special events and our River Road tours and stuff already been on sale, but the walking tours, the Ghost Hunters tours, and the bus tours all just went on sale, or or will have gone on sale when everybody hears this. Right. I think everybody. I think we shattered that illusion a long time ago. That, yeah. yeah. That we record a week or two in advance. <laughs> we got to do what we got to do. Yeah. Exactly. So, but anyway, if you want to experience those those cities this fall, um, get your tickets. Um, we've got, you know, all of that stuff going on in Alton. Uh, we've got the river road tours. We only have four of those and a couple of those are almost filled. Um, we've got our evening with events and I hate to even bring that up because by the time anybody hears this, you know, our third evening with the limps will have already sold out. So it's, yeah, I know it. Um, but we do have some other ones going on along with those tours. Plus we have tours in Springfield and Chicago and Carlinville too. So there's a lot going on this fall. So when all of our ghost hunts and stuff, you know, we're really gearing up for the fall season. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very curious about the limp stuff. It kind of seemed to come out of nowhere and fill up. So if if you, all of a sudden, if you bought tickets or something, tweet at us, let me know, like, where'd you hear about it? How'd you find out? Yeah. It, um, it just, I mean, we'll, we'll, we're obviously going to do more, um, after the first of the year, but, um, just couldn't schedule anymore. I couldn't schedule anymore this year. We already added one in November and December. So there just wasn't, there isn't time to do anymore. So, um, anyway, we're working on a lot of stuff and, uh, we'll, uh, you know, we'll keep everybody posted. Because we have had a lot of people who've been at events lately. Um, in fact, we we met a couple um, last week when we were here. Um, 
Richard and Jennifer that heard about the tours because of the podcast. So, and we, uh, you know, they, uh, we, I, they, I actually let them onto my private Facebook. So, you know, I must've liked them. Right. So no, I do. I'm like still them. not on there. Yeah. You liar. Uh, but no, I, yeah, we did. We, we, we met them because they had heard about it on the, on the podcast. So we, uh, I'm glad that we got to. It's so. working. All right. That's, that's what I wanted. Yeah. Well, that's two people. Hey, so. hey, I was, I was starting <laughs> to zero. Kidding, I'm kidding. Oh, <laughs> uh, anyway. Well, uh, we have some uh, listener reviews I'd like to go over. Oh, sure. This one's from uh, Alien Girl 2019. Well, none of them are going to get as good as Matt's. Matt yes, yeah, so that's, that's true. So. Uh, it's just simply titled <laughs> This Podcast Rocks. Uh, this is an amazing podcast. I really enjoy how Troy Taylor starts off with a story or legend, and then they talk about it afterwards. I started listening a few months ago and have binged all the episodes. I love it so much. I became a patron for this podcast, so mm-hmm. thank you very much. Awesome. Um, really appreciate that, yeah. and it helps us keep doing this and you know making more seasons. Uh, the next one is titled Love the Podcast. This is from Spectral Skeptic. It says, I'm in Tucson, Arizona, and I'm a paranormal investigator and owner of Spectral Skeptic Paranormal Investigations. There's your plug. Um, we have some <laughs> great locations down here, and if it's possible, I'd love to hear a show or two on some Arizona locations. Uh, I know you guys want to know why people give the rating they do, so for me, I like that you are objective and seem to come from a secular perspective. I especially like the St. Louis Haunting series. One other idea, by the way, I'd love to hear is hosting a theoretical physicist or a quantum physicist to discuss the possibility of quantum entanglement and haunting. Very random, but yeah, so I talked to Brandon Masulo uh, and the recording got messed up. It was a bonus episode and didn't end up working, but I kind of pitched him some of these ideas about quantum physics and stuff like that. And we, we talked about it a little bit. Um, as far as doing stuff on Arizona, hey, if we keep going, maybe in a couple of years, yeah. we'll work our <laughs> yeah. way yeah. across the you country. Um, but yeah, thank you very much for your reviews. We really appreciate it. I think there's another one uh, that said I talk too much. I agree. If you could figure out a way to take me out <laughs> of this show i'm so down um but anyway thank you again for the itunes reviews it really helps helps us out helps people find the podcast so rate and review and let us know what you think are you ready to move on sure dive in i am ready whenever you're ready all right okay so april 1917 we are back in villisca iowa america has gone to war and the slander trial it ends up reigniting interest in the murders that had happened five years ago at this point (laughs) yeah Burns Agency wanted money for an unpaid bill of uh, $2,800, which is about $60,000 today. Yeah, it's still a lot, of, a lot of dough. Yeah. I mean, it was a lot of money. Yeah, so, so I, I totally understand. Um, after Wilkerson accused the attorney general of being paid off to protect Frank Jones, <laughs> the state funding came to an end. Gee, well, shocking. fucking duh. I don't understand why, you know. Yeah, I think I, I just, <laughs> that just shows you, like, the ego on this guy oh, God, and, like, the lack of, like, thought. Yeah. You know, like, he doesn't, it. he just... He's his own downfall, you know, like, absolutely. And we'll just we'll even get more into that and everything that happens with him. Um, But he starts holding these meetings um, with people. He starts getting big crowds and we'll we'll talk about some more of the, the bigger crowds he gets even later, but basically just wants money. Uh, even shamelessly convinced an accomplice to get up during the meeting and shout that they'd pledge all their money to the Wilkerson's yeah, crusade. It was, I mean, it was all, it was all staged. Right. I mean, and he, and he continued to do it that way because it worked. In time, it became more like a, you know, a vaudeville show, or, or I think that the comparison I used was that it was like a tent preacher's carnival, yeah. you know, sideshow kind of, you know, revival meeting thing. And that's essentially what he was doing is getting people, getting his base all stirred up, you know, over complete, 
lies, those things he made up, um, as we'll soon find, yeah. or as everyone will soon discover, or our listeners already have, but uh, as far as the people in Montgomery County, will start to realize that he was making so much of that stuff up, and he would just get up and blatantly lie, and they would eat it up, yeah. and just ate it up. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous. Um, so It'd be funny, like I said, it would be hilarious if... People didn't believe what he said. I mean, right. that's what that's what makes it scary. Yeah, so. no, exactly. Uh, so he's he he starts to use uh, Frank's wealth and cool demeanor against him. And so Frank's at a low point in his life, but he's still got money. Um, and Wilkerson decides to kind of try to turn people against him because of that. Uh, long story short, Frank ends up asking for a fair-minded man to be put in charge of this investigation, and if it were done, he'd help pay for the cost himself. He's Frank Jones, and he ends up taking it too far. Yeah, um, well, it was, kind of, it was a, he started off with a anybody but Wilkerson kind of thing, right. you know, and so, but yeah, then he, of course, goes too far. Sure, and, <laughs> and so they decide, okay, we're not going to pay all this money, but sorry, dude, we kind of already promised <laughs> Committed to, that we'd yeah, give him, you know, it, $700, yeah. 15, 15 grand essentially yeah. today, Yeah, um, and they continue with Wilkerson in charge. I don't I don't get why, though. Why did they? Well, it's an agreement they'd already made with the sheriff before the meeting had already taken place. I think um, I, I think the big thing is, and I think I maybe talked about this a little bit in our last episode, is that for a lot of these people, it wasn't so much that they liked Wilkerson that much. It's just that he was the only one doing anything. Yeah, okay. And so they were kind of like, well, you know, this is still unsolved. It's five years later, and, you know, he's the only one still looking. And, you know, for all we know, you know, maybe he's right. Right. You know, they, I mean, as they would find out, you know, a lot of this stuff was just made up. But, you know, it's easy for us to look in hindsight and go, oh, yeah, well, you know, he was making all that stuff up. But yeah. If you had been there at the time and you're caught up in the moment and, you know, and you're in the middle of one of these rallies with everybody cheering and, you know, I I think it was probably easy for a lot of people to get caught up in it. Of course. You know, and and to to swallow the, you know, or drink the Kool-Aid, you know, because... Nobody else is doing anything. Sure. So maybe you know. maybe he'll accidentally uncover something. It, well, in right, his- and that's the problem. And you know, and I'll talk more about. I I talk more about that later too. Is that after a while, it stops being about solving the murders. It just becomes about not solving the murders. Right. Because to keep it going, it, it just keep keeps everything money. going. Yeah. So you know. Yep. Yeah, so the, I, we did get some good news. Uh, Jack Boyle, the reporter, yeah, was yeah. working with him, is in jail for yeah. uh, for opium. Yeah, he and his wife got picked up on opium charges oh, and uh, went to jail. And that pretty much ends his part in our story. I mean, it didn't end his career. Sure, uh, yeah, um, He went on to, you know, create that Blackie Boyle character. Right. So, you know, Boston Blackie. There you go. Boston Blackie, right. There you go. Yeah. So, I mean, hey, you know, he, he did his thing, service time and then whatever. Uh, so Wilkerson starts holding more public rallies, pulling in a bunch of crowd, like some 800 to 1200 people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a and, lot of people. Yeah. And I mean, he's interrupted by. But I also one. pointed out there, there isn't a lot else to do. Yes, exactly. And exactly. that part of Iowa in the wintertime. So sure. You might as well go do something. Right. So. But yeah, very like a televangelist kind of thing you, you mentioned. Um, and he even he's blatantly says, if I, if I were pursuing this for money alone, I would have quit this job a long time ago. Just all bullshit. Yeah, of course. Uh, he needed their financial support to get the killer off the streets of their community, which is a really good tactic. Oh, honestly. yeah, it was good. I mean, it, it, was, it was try to scare people. I mean, and he did that with every meeting. It would become more and more sinister. Oh, this guy's lurking out here and, you know, you're going to be next if you don't give me money. Right. I mean, that's essentially what it boiled down to. Yep. So, yeah. How much money is I still safe? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, by the end of the night, he gets another 250 bucks. Apparently, uh, I, I didn't even really think about this, but I, I kinda, when it came out of nowhere, Wilkerson still has some 
some other issues he's got to deal with back <laughs> yeah. in Kansas City right. uh, because he's on trial for assault. So Detweiler, the, the guy who read about Mansfield arrest and everything, um, like you mentioned, you know, he, he seemed like a really stand up kind right, of guy. Right. He in. was. Yeah. He's like the Innocence Project guy. Yeah. You know, and so he's jumping in and he, hear, he reads this. And I'm sure that, you know, he got publicity out of sure. it. Sure. But on the other hand, he read about this guy getting railroaded and realized that this guy had no defense, had no you know, nobody to help him, no attorney. So he jumped in and offered his services. And now he's, you know, he's filed suit on Mansfield's behalf for five grand against uh, Wilkerson and the Burns Detective Agency. Yeah. And I'm sure he collected a fee out of that. But even so, you know, it was a gutsy move on his part. Uh, But he also had, he also had a good case. Yeah. And he had a really good case. Yeah, as as we're going to get into. But I like it because it's kind of like, you know, when you you have the ability to do the right thing, you kind of have like the responsibility to. Right, Like the obligation, you know, and so he saw something really wrong and and he you know stood up for it and uh so the trial begins february 8th 1917 mansfield's the first witness to call the stand i kind of went back and forth with this do you think he was like really stoked to like get to do this or do you think he was like just wanted to forget it and not be involved i mean i think that i think he wanted some measure of justice or justice or revenge against wilkerson because i mean they'd hauled him off the street for absolutely nothing Mm -hmm. um he just picked him pretty much out of a hat picked him and decided to say he was a killer, you know, picked him up off the street, beat the shit out of him. Yeah. I mean, really, I mean, beat him a lot. I didn't realize he was I mean, that but badly Again, though, that was standard police procedure back right, in those right. days. I mean, you know, that we've talked about the third degree before and, you know, and a lot of cops did that and it was okay back then to beat pe- a confession out of sure. people. But even the, even the detective at the police station after, you know, uh, Detweiler came and said, Hey, I've got this, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to waive extradition here. We're going to, you know, we're going to fight this. And, um, Wilkerson got so mad that he punched, uh, Mansfield in the face. Mm-hmm. And then the detective says, Oh, wait a minute. We don't do that here. Yeah. Um, so I mean, maybe, maybe not, I but th- well, you know, I think those, the, those officers should be held accountable too. Well, they probably should have, but according to Mansfield and his attorney, that the beatings only happened when the cops were out of the room. Right. But, but yeah. of course they went out of the room so that I'm sure so that Wilkerson could beat on exactly. for a few minutes and then they wouldn't get in trouble for it. Right. Well, I know. mean, the guy's spitting up blood. It's a different time, man. It was yeah. a different time. There was no, you know, there, there wasn't anything like that back then. There were no Miranda warnings there. Were, you know, none right. of that stuff wouldn't come around for a long time. And, so it was perfectly okay to beat a confession out of someone you thought was a criminal. And even, you know, Wilkerson even says that during the trial says, well, you know, I thought I was dealing with a man. No, he he's lying, but right. his excuse was, I thought I was dealing with a mass murderer. So, you know, if he gets beat up a little bit, well, too bad. Right. I mean, that was pretty much what he had to say. But about I didn't it. beat him up. Right. Except I didn't do it. Yeah. But. You know, that, that, that was, that was the way things worked. Yeah. You know. Okay. Anyway, so yeah, it's a different time. I actually, I was looking up the Miranda Wright stuff cause I was curious. Um, that was until like what the sixties, sixties, yeah, yeah. 66 yeah. maybe. So which that's, I was like, damn. That's why when you watch all those, you know, like those forties film noir, mm-hmm. they're, you know, beating guys with telephone books right. and rubber hoses because well, you could, yeah. you know, um, but none of that changed until more, much more recently. And yeah. then there's been all kinds of scandals, especially like in Chicago and stuff about, the, you know, these these black sites in Chicago right. police departments yep. where they were taking guys and torturing them. I mean, that's been going on forever. I mean, I'm not excusing it. I'm just saying yeah. it's been going on. It's forever. not a new thing. No, it's not. Yeah. Um, eventually it's cross-examined. It's not really. It, 
not too eventful. Uh, they, but they bring in J.H. Barnes, who's a cellmate of Mansfield, um, who testifies. Yeah, he was badly beaten when he arrived. He's like, also, I know a guy named Insane Blackie, <laughs> yeah. not Mansfield. Right. Um, and it, I think Brady objected to his testimony at first, saying like, hey, he's not a doctor. He can't offer medical opinion. <laughs> right. You just need eyes. Yeah, right. To, to see, see that he's spitting up blood and he's been been beaten up. Right. right. But luckily, the next two witnesses were doctors. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and they go yeah. through a laundry list of things that are it's that are too up bad that none of the trials in iowa went this smoothly yeah i mean really right. i mean he had several attorneys and there was a lot of bitching back and forth but there isn't anything in any of the ohio or the iowa parts of the story that goes smoothly as this particular trial right did. i mean yeah some of these things it seems things start to get a little bit more reasonable once you start reading about some of these like five years later, grand jury things right, and right, cases. Right. It's like people are actually yeah. paying attention. Yeah. The defense eventually calls Wilkerson, lies about everything. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. But I like it when he says, oh, and then he, oh, no, I gave him all the water he wanted. Yeah. I don't even know what that means. Right. I, even, I mentioned that, that it would rust his constitution. And I, yeah. I mentioned, I, I'm not sure what that means, <sighs> but I think you get the idea. Yeah. But yeah. He says he never used any profanity and all that. And it's, come on, right. man. Right. <laughs> come yeah. On. I mean, I mean, a cop saw you punch him in the face. And that's, that's <laughs> you how know. You, you, you know he's lying because you can't. It's like when you cheat well, on a test. Well, you know he's lying because his mouth's open. No. So I, th- I think, you know, he's lying because it's like when you're cheating on a test, you don't get a hundred percent. You got to <laughs> right. miss, miss a couple right. answers. So he can't say. Maybe I did a couple yeah, things. Yeah, exactly. Right. Say, okay, I, I pushed him a little bit. I rubbed yeah. him up. But, you know, like you can't. But he's like, exaggerating no. kind of thing. Sure. Sure, but, sure. You know, like I said, though, if you you know he's lying because his mouth is open and he's speaking, right? So exactly, he's that, that piece of work. Uh, yeah. So jury ends up finding in favor of Mansfield and uh, awards him twenty five hundred dollars, which is about fifty four thousand. Yeah, in damages. Bad. Yeah, back then from the yeah, Burns Detective Agency, probably more money than he'd ever made in his life up to that. Point. I yep, I wouldn't so. doubt it. Um, they appeal, lose again. Mansfield eventually becomes a labor organizer, does some good does some good stuff, and yeah. then dies in the nineteen fifties yeah. in Milwaukee. Yeah, kind of got his act together. You know, started yeah. doing something useful. Yeah, that's good. Instead of, you know, deserting from the army and abandoning his wife. So he, right. now he's doing something a little more useful. But don't you, I always, the what part about the trial I liked was the fact that the, um, Wilkerson's attorney tried to make him look bad because he had tattoos. That's right. what I liked. Yeah. But of course, I mean, it was 1917. Thing, so, yeah. I mean, not everybody had tattoos back then. Right. And but I thought it was funny. It, so. I mean, it is funny. And then it's like, okay, it's not relevant. It was like, oh, no, I'm trying to get his yeah. credibility here, yeah, you know? Because he has tattoos. He, he has must tattoos. be a, a liar and a criminal. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I bet you get judged for the <laughs> sleeves all the time now, right? You're like, well, I don't want this guy leading my ghost tour. He's got, uh, he's yeah, got some right. tattoos going on. Exactly. Uh, so, then back in Villisca, I Iowa, uh, the grand jury starts digging deeper into the murders than anyone ever had before. <laughs> Iowa. Yeah. In other words, not taking everything Wilkerson says yeah. as solid evidence. It's like, hey, yeah. maybe we should look into this a little bit. Yeah. And it's, it's, they really, I mean, I think it was having these two guys in charge. Yeah. I mean, having Havner who, you know, had watched Wilkerson deal with uh, Attorney General Cousin and mm-hmm. stuff. And I think that. He knew that he was kind of an ass and Winston had seen him in action mm-hmm. at the slander trial. And, you know, they had the only information they had was all of the stuff he was offering. And so they decided, well, he's a detective. This is how things are done right now. And so we have to collect what he says as evidence because 
he is a licensed investigator. So, right. you know, he is at that time, he was as good as a state cop or something. Now that was, that does change here uh, when they start having, you know, state agents and stuff and all of that's going to change yep. right, right in the middle of kind of where we are right now, because they, this was really the case that pointed out to the people of Iowa that having private detectives doing this stuff is not working. Right. There's too many of them that are disreputable. Um, just like when they signed that Thompson law mm -hmm. into effect, that was done because of James Wilkerson. Right. It's a law that's still on the books. Yeah. So there are things about this case that changed everything about historically speaking, everything about law enforcement in Iowa, all because of this. Yeah. It's kind of like when I felt the need to put in the things about Frank Jones being the, one of the guys who paved the way for paved roads in Iowa. Right. It doesn't have anything really to do with our story, but it, it's important that people see that these characters who are just characters to us, but mm -hmm. we're real people, what an influence all of this had on right. so many things. Yeah. And, you know, the stuff that Wilkerson pulled just with this grand jury, you know, with them, you know, starting to testify or starting to question these witnesses that he had, you know, put the, together the dope sheet, you know, mm -hmm. with all of these reports and all of the things that these witnesses said. And then they're finding out that that's not what these people ever said. And it's certainly not what they're saying now in front of a grand jury. Right. So this was completely wrong from the beginning. So why is this guy still working here? Well, he wouldn't be for long. Right. You know, but right. but this is this made a, a huge huge change for everything to do with grand jury proceedings and, you know, everything to do with this crime. Yeah. Oh, I mean, good luck. Asking. I mean, he kept this, I mean, he, it would, I don't think it would have been solved anyway. Sure. Cause that, the killer was long gone, but Wilkerson did more to prevent the solving of this case than he ever did trying to help it get solved. Right. I mean, it, the things he did just were completely at odds with any kind of justice you could possibly imagine. Well, there's more money in not solving it. Well, exactly. You can drag it out and make it go on longer. Yeah. You know, absolutely. Like I said, there's uh, new people pretty much on this case, and now they don't have to necessarily use private detectives because they got some special investigators assigned full time. They want to do a good job, look at stuff with fresh eyes, so they decided to check out another suspect, uh, our old friend, Reverend Kelly, the strange little minister, as <laughs> right. you call him. Right. 5'2", uh, you know, that is... Yeah, he's a he's weird a, little dude, man. That is, that is short. So, March, March, no, we'll get back to that, but March 1917, grand jury proceedings begin. Um, there's, there's problems with James Wilkerson almost immediately. Oh, yeah, of course. And basically, he just wants to be more involved and get credit right. in case. Right, that's all Jones it's about. It's credit, yeah. He's just a big baby. Like, yeah, well, he yeah, he's attention. whining and crying about, I mean, that's everything that he's complaining about and everything he does boils down to the fact that he didn't feel like he got enough attention. Right. So he decides to, well, I mean, when it's all over even, and we'll get to that, but, um, you know, that's, that's what it was about. And I like the scene where he was called to the stand and was asked to talk about Alice Willard and he refused to answer the questions. Yeah. And then when he left, he, he wanted his, he wanted his ball to go home. Yes. He was going to take his yes. ball and go home. He was going to take the dope sheet with him and they wouldn't let him have it. And they were essentially Havner and Winston were essentially playing keep away mm -hmm. with him. And the judge just lost his shit, yeah. you know, and sent him to jail. Which so, is, which is hilarious. Yeah. And, and so, but eventually they end up like, he doesn't answer on the record, I guess, right. but then they still call him, but app, up just to after, embarrass him, just to embarrass, just him, to which embarrass is, him, which is amazing. Yeah. I love yeah. that they did. Well, that. I mean, Havner really hated him by the right, end. Right. So, you know, right. I'm just, I'm confused as like, okay, so he has the dope sheet and then these people keep changing their stories and everybody seems to know that they're changing their stories. Why did it take so long for anybody to be like, let's reconcile these 
issues. I don't that's you know? a good question because this is actually the second grand jury that's looked into this yeah. stuff. And I think the first one, you know, I, I just I don't know. The first one was about Mansfield, though. Mm, and yeah. well, and they didn't they didn't indict him because right. none of it stuck. So that was all the stuff he'd made up about Mansfield. And then we had the slander trial, which is really the thing about the slander trial is we'd already had these same people in and had their stories you know, not necessarily dismissed because, I mean, Wilkerson didn't lose the slander trial, mm-hmm. but they were already finding that there were a lot of flaws. So I'm not sure, I guess, because Havner and Winston weren't in charge of that prosecution or weren't in charge of that trial because it was a civil trial. Yeah. And so, I mean, they were, well, Winston was there, but, you know, I, I don't know why they decided to bring him in, but obviously they were nervous. They mm-hmm. were nervous from the very beginning and then they get him in there. And all of these witnesses, I mean, and it's the same people. Uh, Alice Willard. I mean, and, yeah. Alice Willard and Ed Landers and that damn Vena Tompkins mm-hmm. again, yep. who then gets up and completely changes her story. I, I've lost track. Yeah, I mean, I, I even, I'm even almost sympathetic toward Wilkerson at that point in the story <laughs> right. because it's like, how could he possibly keep track of what she was going to say? Because this woman was a chronic liar. At least Wilkerson was was lying for a reason. Mm-hmm. I mean, he had a motive for his lies. Yeah. This woman's just nuts. Just I mean, she just lies. I mean, just hey, listen, I knew somebody just, I knew somebody like that that would lie to you yeah. over nothing. And it wouldn't even, and, 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 and things that didn't even matter. Yeah. You know, like telling me that they were Eddie Vedder's cousin and, you know, all kinds of just crazy stuff that didn't matter. They just like the thrill. But they maybe, just or... like to lie about yeah. it. And it was just bizarre. And this is the closest thing I can think of. This That's what this woman reminds me of. She just lies about stuff just because she can. Yeah. I, I, it's just bizarre. I, I don't know. Yeah. I no. can't wrap my head around it. Well, they, they end up calling Wilkerson to the stand to clear things up about why why are all these stories so different from your dope sheet and stuff. And he, I mean, he's a smart guy. He can see the yeah, trap he he's, wa- he's walking happen. into. Yeah. yeah, he said either he's going to be perceived as having misunderstood Willard or deliberately deliberately misstating her or as telling jurors that she changed her story and uh, neither option is good. Yeah. yeah. So he just shuts up and refuses to answer. And he refused to answer any of the questions. Yeah. Eventually he's found in contempt of court, spends a day in jail. Uh, he did not go quietly as Literally you Literally 24 hours in jail. Yes. That was, and they I, were going to make sure about that. I love so. how he's like, I get out at midnight because that's when the day's over. Uh-huh. Like, yeah. come on, dude. Yeah. Like, he just must have been so insufferable. So arrogant. Yeah. So arrogant. Just, you I know. bet he had a really punchable face. Oh, you know, um, you oh know? I've, yeah. I've seen the pictures. I don't know if you've seen I haven't, them. No. He's always smirking. Every yeah. picture I've yeah. ever seen, he's smirking. Yeah, that's just probably oh. how his face looks. Yeah. His, his supporters are pissed that he's not going to be released at midnight and they have to wait 24 hours. Uh, they go and wake up the attorney general. I would be so pissed. Uh, I'm sure he was, but I think he also was just kind of probably came down with like, huh, yeah, he's not getting out. Yeah, oh, and yeah, I'll bet sure. it kind of felt good to I, tell him to get lost. I bet. You know? I would just, I hate so. when people bring problems to me that are not real problems. <laughs> right, right. Like you understand how this works, right? <laughs> uh, anyway, Wilkerson's back on the stand Tuesday. Uh, I like it. He says he planned to explain things to prosecutors, but they were just <laughs> right. ignoring him. Right. It's their fault. Right. Because it's never his fault. It's someone right. else's fault. And I think that they should have been like, well, hey, you have our attention now. Yeah. Tell us everything. And so even eventually he delays answering the question. Um, well, you know, I'm going to need to see the transcript. I want to make right. sure. Oh, come on, man. Right. So. Which today could be a quick thing, but yeah, I'm sure back, back then, then. Yeah, somebody had to take care of it. So Right. And so even, like you said, even Vina Tompkins changed her stories again. I uh, said heads were likely spinning on the grand jury. So other witnesses were called to the stand and just disputing statements <laughs> in the dope sheet. <laughs> One after another. My only note so. is this is beautiful because I would have loved to see <laughs> yeah. him just falling apart. Uh-huh. 
Um, the, and then the angle of Donald Jones having multiple affairs didn't really pan out either. The proceedings continued until April when the grand jury finally issued their long-awaited report. Um, it's just a stinging criticism of Wilkerson, but nothing else. Right. Well, they just said that there's not any, there's no evidence to indict Frank Jones or anyone else right. based on the material that you brought us. Yep. You know, based on everything Wilkerson had, which was, you know, three years worth of reports and work, but it was all made up or yeah. it was coached witnesses or, you know, again, you're, you're, you're asked to believe that these witnesses saw something on the night of the murders that was earth shattering, right. but yet never told anybody, yeah. never told the authorities, never told anyone else until Wilkerson came along. And it's like, come on, man, you know, nobody's going to believe this. Uh, but I mean, people did. He got obviously. further than I thought yeah, he would. Honestly. He did. But, you know, at that point, they're not going to, they're not going to indict Frank Jones and yeah. they're not, you know. So there, there's where we've kind of left things, yeah. you know, with that. Well, so the aftermath, Wilkerson's he's down, but he's not out. Oh, of course not. Of course not. Not yet. He not tries, yet. tries to build the county board of supervisors, uh, holds another rally. Um, he lost his job with the Burns Agency because he said the authorities were trying to keep him from yeah, telling right. the truth. In other words, the, it's like, okay, you have cost us. You know, not only do we have to represent you in a slander trial, we also had to represent you in this, you know, this uh, assault trial and you lost and we had to pay the, the money. So he, I think had was more trouble than he was. Worth, sure. You know? Um, so he also, this is a little weird, but he claims that while in a cell, a phantom woman <laughs> yeah. appeared to him, said uh, she'd come to kill him, saw an ax on the floor of the cell. It's a what? bizarre story and he never explains it. That's why I said he left the audience to do their own dream interpretation. Yeah, sure. None of it makes sense. And neither do most of his, neither do most of the statements that he makes. My, my favorite one was that, you know, that he would stay on the case as long as he was needed and as long as his friends wanted him to, although he might be forced to stop at any time. And I thought, <laughs> right. Okay, well, that's a confusing promise. <laughs> I don't understand. So it's yeah. just in case he needs an exit. Yeah. Some weird, weird, weird stuff and out you, of his mouth. You mentioned that. The Thompson bills introduced basically don't like hold rallies and do things that could yeah, uh, or threaten grand jury members right. or, you know, Influence the prosecutors it. or anything else. Right. Yeah. And yeah, while and a grand jury is going on. And this yeah. ends up being a bigger problem later, which seems to be a no brainer. But there was no law against it yeah. at the time, and you know, so I mean, the laws have to come from somewhere. Yeah. Right. You know, so. No. Right. Uh, so the grand jury is eventually called back. But the new yes. focus is Reverend Lynn George Kelly. Um, only took four days yeah, to indict like him. Three weeks going through his stuff. Yeah. Right. Uh, and then in, in 1917, Jones detective, who was also a freelance reporter, uh, used the name J.H. Moore. <laughs> I know. Why? I, know. I don't know. And I, I, I did say that. And, you know, I'm sorry. We don't need anyone else named Moore in this story. So he went by the, uh, I think I make a note. He went by the the initials JH. So that's we're what gonna we're going to call him for the rest of the time. Right. It's too confusing. Not well, so, to. so I like this. He went on undercover uh, among Wilkerson's yeah. circle of supporters, yeah. which is cool. Like those guys that, you know, used to go back in the day, hell's go angels. undercover <laughs> with the hell's angels or the clan yes. or something, you know, yes. and dig up dirt on him for the FBI. But see, now we were finally, we were, we found a decent detective and we were also, Habner was also starting to use some of the state agents who'd recently been hired to be investigators. Mm -hmm. I mean, he brought them into this case, which they never had before. Yeah. Um, would they have gotten, well, I'll tell you, I don't know, again, still don't think that this probably would have been solved, but I can tell you that they, if they'd had state investigators a few years earlier, this never would have gone on as long as it did. Mm -hmm. they, it would have been left unsolved, but we wouldn't have had this, all this stuff with Frank Jones and everything. Somebody still would have went after Kelly though. Yeah. For sure. 
because uh, Kelly is points a, at him. Yeah, Kelly is a is an easy target in this, and well, we'll you, talk more about that in the next. When you episode, confess but, a bunch of times, well, I know, but and there was a lot more going on with him than that. Sure. We'll talk about it next time. But, yep, yeah, yeah, that'll be on the next one. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he goes undercover, and Jones ends up getting information from him, passing it on to Havner, um, and, and then finding s- out they had a plant in the grand jury. Right, so Wilkerson Smith, had, yeah, Scott kept, Smith kept yeah. kept in contact with Wilkerson. Um, and Wilkerson immediately sets out to find the minister and arrange for uh, Kelly's legal defense because he's pretty much just trying to out of fuck spite. stuff up. It yeah. has to be spite. Yeah. I mean, he 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 tries to paint it like he honestly believes Frank Jones is the killer and doesn't want anyone else to suffer for Frank Jones' right, sins. Right. That's a load of crap. Um, he's just trying to stay in the headlines. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter which side he's on as long as he's still in the newspapers. Yeah. And I really think that he, you know, knowing that if Kelly got indicted and charged with this and was found guilty of the murders. That means Frank Jones never would be. And he would always be the guy who got it wrong. Right. Um, but I also think that, you know, he was just trying to screw with Havner too. Yeah. I really do. Well, Havner does it back. Yeah. So it's yes, not it like, you know, it's not like he, you know, was innocent in all this, but it was retaliatory, at least from the attorney general's point of view. Sure. So, but I mean, cause Wilkerson is, uh, is, I mean, he's been out of control for years, but mm-hmm. it just keeps getting worse. Things just keep escalating. He's got a way of getting people to stoop down to his level. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like, good. I mean, look at the way he'd goad Frank Jones into, you know, oh, now let's talk about all the dirt I've dug up on Wilkerson. No, right. and his attorney jumps in. Oh, let's not talk about that. Let's yeah. talk about and something that, else. And that does yeah. not that, like, just like the whole slander trial. Well, I know I mean, I, he just obviously know. never met him, but that doesn't sound like the Frank Jones I know <laughs> from the earlier parts. You know, no, I think that this all came after this, you know, after all of this stuff. I mean, this guy has now spent like the last five years with people he's known all his life thinking that he arranged a murder of someone that he actually liked, you know? And so... I, you know, I think that, I think he's justified in a lot of the crazy stuff that oh, he totally. does. I mean, I get it. I understand why he did it. You just hate to see him stoop to Wilkerson's level. Yep. That's, that's you, the problem. You still see a little bit of his character shine through when he's like, no, the agency should be paid for the work right. that if they've done. If you committed you know? to this, yeah. right, then yeah. pay them. But if you, you know, if there's a way out of it, let's get out of it. Yeah. I think that was more of what he was saying. Cause you got to figure, um, it's a County board. You have, how many how much you think he's paying in taxes right? compared to all of these yahoos who are buddies of Wilkerson, mm-hmm. you know? So here's a guy paying on businesses and banks and all the money he makes. He's got a bigger stake in whether or not the county bills get paid than probably anyone else that was there that night. Yeah. But, you know, on the other hand, you know, Beeson jumps in and settles him down, right, right. which I wish he could have done before the slander trial, but we wouldn't have had such fun, you know, (laughs) fun time with the slander trial. Right. Otherwise. Yeah. I mean, well, just the fact that he didn't, like we talked about it before, but just the fact that he didn't pay people to take Wilkerson out back and beat him. Right. Exactly. You know, exactly. And he he easily could have. He easily could have. Yeah. He had the money. Uh, If it had been me, I would have. Oh, hell yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Why not? I I I for sure would have. Make that guy disappear. Yeah. 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 Um, (laughs) Anyway, so anyway, like I said, Wilkerson sets out to find, um, find Kelly. Uh, Havner eventually, he has more important things to worry about because he needed to find Reverend Kelly. Yeah. And so Wilkerson doesn't know someone else is going to, to yes. find He thinks Kelly. he's the only one right now. And, and Havner and they can't doesn't figure know out Wilkerson why the knows. state is going so slow. Well, they're not. They were right. already looking for him, but they hadn't found him yet. Right. So they so, need to find Kelly, and that's we'll where we'll pick, pick that up. up next episode. So I'm, I'm really excited about the next episode because <laughs> it gets there's weird. some really good stuff. Not only do you <laughs> have all the pervy stuff with Reverend Kelly, but yes. there's like a really great 
scene, essentially, uh, like a Keystone Cops comedy scene in the next episode that okay. I just really like. Um, plus, you got Kelly's trial and all the weird sex stuff, and it's it's a good episode. I'm excited. Yeah. I think, in fact, I think our next episode may be maybe our longest episode yes. ever. I know I yes. I've only topped that a couple of times, but uh, we are getting toward the end of this. Mm-hmm. Season. I mean, we're getting close to the end. We all have a few more episodes, and there'll be some ghosts. Yeah, too. and the, yes, all of the ghost stuff will be our last episode. But we'll have a lot of. Um, we're going to wrap a lot of stuff up in two episodes with you know what happened to everybody, and then we'll get into the the ins and outs of actually who the other suspects were and who did it and what happened that night yeah. in June of 1912. And I've got a pretty detailed analysis mm-hmm. of that. So, and then we'll get to the ghost stories. We'll so, wrap up the season. So without not much it, left. Without any spoilers, um, while I was going through this next episode, I started to feel bad for Kelly. Should I, or will that um, be kind of squashed? Um, well, I mean, you can feel bad for him if you are into like, you know, kitty porn and you know perversion <laughs> okay, okay uh but yeah i mean as far as a murder not, suspect as far as a murder suspect goes um he just you can like feel sorry for man. him he he is he is a completely deranged individual who never committed a murder mm-hmm. uh but i think that people honestly and maybe at the time i might have believed it too yeah because i mean he is a good suspect sure um he's a good suspect i just it just it wasn't him yeah you know but Anyway, yeah. but we'll get to that. We'll get to that. It's now time for our Ghostwriter segment. If you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre, email us at AmericanHauntingsPodcast at gmail.com. Our first email comes to us from Alexandria. The subject is hello from New Mexico. It says, hey, Troy and Cody, uh, I don't believe I've reached out to anyone as a fan, so forgive me if I sound like a total goober. I happened upon your show while pulled over on the side of the road with a small spot of cell phone service while driving through the Southwest. I don't know why that context seemed important to mention, but here we are. The first episode I downloaded that evening was The Mysterious Case of Patience Worth, and I've been hooked ever since. That is a great episode. It was a fun episode. I think all the St. Louis stuff, I, I, I was real pleased with that season. Yeah, and that's that just a good a biz- one. That's a bizarre story. That's yeah. one of the and ones I can't. It's a standalone. I can't so. debunk that. Like, yeah, that, no, it's, it's, that's a tough it's one. It's crazy. Sorry, so she goes on. Uh, the Limp Family series was beautifully done in a heartbreaking story. I, I agree. The St. Louis exorcism was absolutely chilling, so much to the point that I had to stop listening some evenings from getting spooked. I'm now <laughs> in the Murdered in Their Bed series, just finished episode six. I have to laugh at myself while I listen to the podcast because I do close the blinds and lock the doors now. <laughs> yeah, I don't blame her. Maybe it's because I'm scared of Billy the Axe Man, or maybe it's because I live in Albuquerque, New Mexico. <laughs> you know, either one. Uh, you've done a wonderful job providing context, history, and commentary, and I'm always looking forward to the next episode or the next dad joke. Hell yeah, you are. Thank you. Uh, I don't want to gush too much, but you guys are the best, and as uh, long as you keep the podcast going, I'll keep listening. Yes, Troy, I always listen to the very end of every episode. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm sorry for that. So <laughs> No, thank you so much. That's uh, that's probably one of my favorite emails. Yeah, I've it was gotten. great. That, that was great. Awesome. So, yeah, Alexandria, really thank you so much um, for listening to our random podcast when you're in a completely different part of the country, and um, you know, thank thank you again for listening. And Troy, you you have a Yeah, actually, interview. I got an email from one of our listeners, uh, Jim Bowles, and he actually wrote and his his it wasn't so much about the podcast, which is why I didn't send it over to you sure. as a as a ghostwriter thing. But he said, "Hey Troy, I have enjoyed reading several of your books so far and listening to the American Hauntings podcast. I really love both of them so much. It's inspired me to start looking into the history in my own neck of the woods, Asheville, North Carolina. I was just wondering if you could share some of the sites and sources you use that I might be able to utilize to find out information here. Any advice or help that you could give would be greatly appreciated. Thanks for the inspiration. Keep writing, and I'll keep reading." 
and I did send Jim some stuff and I think he is on some of the same lines. I, I was actually doing an interview the other day with someone from the uh, Post-Dispatch in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. We were talking about, I was talking about how many books I'd written and we were talking about how much easier it is now yeah. than when I wrote my first book or even my first 20 books when you had to go, you, the only way to find stuff. And I still like to find stuff that way, but the only way to find stuff was to go dig through archives and historical societies and libraries and microfilms, you know, of newspapers and stuff. And now, you know, newspapers are are at our fingertips, you know, I subscribe to a service and and Jim mentioned that too. So, uh, but what I wanted to do here is to say, if we have some of our other listeners who might be in the Asheville area or maybe grew up in the area or whatever, and know some ghost stories and some local haunts and local weird stuff that get, get in touch with us. Yeah. And I will pass that on to Jim and maybe put you in touch with him so that you guys could maybe, you know, pass some ideas back and forth. So anyway, that's just my, I'm throwing that out there for Jim. If he needs some, you know, a little assistance, if anybody's got some, send it our way, Asheville, North Carolina. So, yeah, that's great. And you yeah. can email us at AmericanHauntingsPodcast at gmail.com. Hit us up on Twitter, uh, Instagram yeah. now, yeah. Um, and we'll connect. We'll put you in contact with him. Yeah, um, yeah I think that, that's great. And I have something um, I don't I don't want to say this to you because I want your head to be able to fit when you walk out the door, but you are great at research. That's something I, I've I always like admired about you. That's what I was telling that um, reporter is that sometimes the research is as much fun as the writing. Yeah. Um, I've got, and this is the first time I'm announcing this, but... It'll probably be out around the time this episode is out, but I actually just did a third edition to my book about the Lemp family. Um, I had a bunch of material and dug up a bunch more. So I've actually updated a lot of stuff about the the family and some of the early history and things about Elsa and her death and some of the things, a few things we talked about a little bit in the podcast, but weren't in the book. Um, so that'll be coming out in a couple of weeks, comes out later in August, but that was as much fun for me as actually writing the updates, Yeah, you know, just working on, you know, finding more stuff and finding the, you know, people, I had a couple of people ask me cause I had promised that after we did the haunted St. Louis season that we did a couple of episodes on the Lamberts and all their seances. Yep. And I had mentioned at the time that I was working on a book about that. And I still am, but I've actually been spending so much time researching it <laughs> that I haven't actually gotten around to writing it yet. But I, I hope to have that out next year, um, in 2020 sometime, because it's still such a great story. Yeah. Um, and the Lamberts are, are fascinating and I've gotten more material than I had before, mm-hmm. you know, so, um, I'm excited about doing it. So it's, it is coming. Yeah. So how, at um, any given time, how many books are you writing or researching for? Um, I don't know. Usually like three or four. Yeah. All yeah. Right. And it just, and whatever I get the most done with, I mean, I've got like, uh, not if I, I won't count the limp book. I've got three other books that are in the process of either writing or researching mm-hmm. right now. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping to have something out for Christmas this year. I got a little behind working on a ghostwriting project this summer, uh, but I'm working on a new title that I hope to have out by Christmas. It won't be the Lamberts, but I'm hoping for that for next year. Nice. So, nice. So yeah. you ever like start pulling at a thread and like going for a story and that's how I research? got onto the Lamberts in the first place. Well, I was going to say, I was gonna say <laughs> yeah. do, you, do you ever do a lot of that and then find out shit, there's nothing here. I shouldn't um, write about this, like sink a bunch of time and do something like that. Um, not usually. Usually I'll work my way backward or I know where the ending is. Mm, okay. And if it's a good ending, if it's a good general story with a good ending, then I will dig backwards and 
find out how it got there. Okay, that's you an see interesting what I'm saying? approach. And sometimes, yeah. sometimes you'll find there's not enough of a backstory to make it. I mean, I could make an entire book out of some things, mm-hmm. but I could, you know, it could be a piece in another book. And yeah. I've done that quite a bit. And then I'll just use it somewhere else down the road. Because, um, you know, I, I've sent you and I think we've had some of them as extra bonus episodes in Patreon and stuff. I'll have a lot of short stories. I have a lot of short stories. At some point, we I, I kind of like to do a season on... Um, I know. I dead, hope, the, I hope I know what you're dead men do tell tales with these crime ghost stories that wouldn't make an entire season, mm. but they make great episodes. Okay. Do you see what I'm I, saying? I thought you were going to say the people that just disappear at like, Oh, I'd love to do that too. We could do a whole, we could do a whole season of that too. I love that stuff. I mean, that, that's something I've been obsessed with forever. And I did a book on it and then, but I keep collecting more stories Mm -hmm. And so one of these days I'm either going to have to, it's called without a trace. Oh, okay. I'm either going to have to update the book or we're just going to have to do a whole podcast season on it. So that's, that's something, you know, Hey, I guess people can let us know if they're interested. We actually have season four and we're not telling you what it is yet, Yes, uh, but we do have season four already planned. So I guess we'll see maybe season five. Who knows? Yeah. I could definitely do a whole season on that. I love that stuff. That's great stuff. Yes. And I will say the only thing I'm going to say there will be ghosts and a lot of ghosts. And then our next, in our next season, the next yeah, season. it's ghosts every episode. Yes. So we, we so. dabbled in the true crime stuff and yeah. that's fun. And I'm not saying we won't ever no, go back right. to We'll that. come back to it because we like that too, but we like to have ghosts mixed in and we will. Right. And our next season is going to be, it's going to be, it's going to be history and it's going to be ghosts, but it's going to be ghosts every, pretty much every episode yeah. for the most part. Yeah. So. Well, I'm going to have to get that, uh, without a trace book now, yeah. those stories creep me out yeah. so much more. I don't, I think it's because like, what could happen again? It's, it's kind of like I was talking when I was talking to that reporter, we were talking about the St. Louis exorcism and I'm like, a kid didn't ask for it. So, I mean, it could happen to anybody yeah. and disappearing without a trace literally, literally can happen to anyone. Right. You could walk out the door one day and never be seen again, or someone in your family or wife, girlfriend, whatever. It can happen. And it has happened to a lot of people. And they have, and it's not like find the body later. It's yeah. never find them again. It's the weird. And it happens. I think it's the, the circumstances that creep me out so much where like you pull over to the side of the road, change a tire kind of thing. And like somebody's mm-hmm. gone or going to get gas yeah. and walk out and yeah. the person's just gone yeah. forever. I know. It, Oh. I did a few of those for bonus episodes, that's, yeah, remember? That, and yeah, I think it, like I the guy in the airplane that went back to use. The, I mean, this is an yeah. airplane. It's in the fifties and they're flying to Vegas. I think where they flying to I, Vegas. I it was remember. like a, it was coming out of Illinois and it was a convention of like the Elks or something. And they're on their way to Las Vegas. And this guy gets up, walks to the bathroom to use the bathroom and never comes back. And that while he's gone to the bathroom, that plane hits some turbulence. That's the only odd thing that happens. Yeah. And he never comes out of the bathroom and the door's locked from the inside and they cannot figure out where he went. And to this day, it's still unsolved. Um, so yeah, we might have to dig into some of those, um, you know, if we do that season, which it kind of yeah. sounds like we're now leaning be, toward that season, aren't we? So, I don't know. Let us know. Yeah, what you, let what us you know think. what you guys think. And uh, we'll, um, you know, we've got, I mean, we don't have any end in sight for this. No. So I guess, you know, we can keep doing whatever. But, uh, you know, how, you let us know what you guys feel about it. I'm, I'm rambling now. No, so let's, cool. let's wrap cool. this thing up. It's cool. So, did, wait, did anyway, he? guys, thank you for listening. I'm going to wrap this up. So okay. are you done? I was going to say, did he, did he jump out of the plane with a bunch of money? That he no, stole? no, that's D.B. Cooper, I know, I know. but um, who never found him either. But um, 
no, he just disappeared and they couldn't figure, I mean, to this day, I mean, it, it, just, it just vanished. Um, anyway, um, we, we are going to wrap it up. And as Cody said earlier, thank you for the iTunes reviews. Um, I don't know why. I mean, there's so many places to listen to podcasts, but you really got to review it on iTunes. Is That's the way it gets out there. So we appreciate it. If you even if you listen to some weird way, please go on there and leave us a review. And uh, we appreciate it. We appreciate your emails. We appreciate you guys telling us how much you enjoy the podcast. Even if I think you're lying half the time, <laughs> uh, when you come on our tours and stuff, tell us that you heard about the podcast. Yeah, Uh, because there's nothing more disheartening than to go to a event and and go, how many people listen to the podcast? And like four people raise their hand. Yeah. What is that about? I'm failing at my job. I don't don't know know what that's about. But anyway, thank you guys very much. And we will talk to you again in two weeks. This episode of the American Hauntings podcast was written by Troy Taylor. (laughs) Produced and edited by me, Cody Beck. In each episode, we try to combine history, folklore, legend, imagination, and the truth to reveal more about America's most haunted places, strange tales, and unexplained events. I could talk. American Hauntings is a bi-weekly podcast. Listen, a you can hear new episodes every other Tuesday. So please, t- uh, please tune in to hear our latest episode and take a brand new look at history and hauntings. You can learn more about our podcast and find new episodes on iTunes, Spotify, or your other favorite podcast apps by searching for American Hauntings, or you can go to AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com. Let us know where you yeah, listen. Yeah, I'm kind of curious. And we also Does anybody listen to on Troy's Spotify? Books. They do. I like Spotify. I have some of the numbers Oh, yeah? On that. Do you? Yeah. Okay. Troy's I'm just books, curious. information about upcoming tours, events, and haunted happenings. So, Remember, if you love this show, show american hauntings is more than just this podcast it's books tours events ghost hunts and the haunted america conference all of which you can find at our website at americanhauntings.net and if you're one of the people who wish we had a new show every week well end? you can have that you have the chance to support can I the podcast this for the next season so it's only Patreon like a page. paragraph yes. or something as a supporter you can get bonus episodes of the show I mean, I'm bored now great stuff in the mail <laughs> and more we're extremely excited about producing more shows with better equipment and with your help we can dedicate more time and resources to making that happen and having Troy rewrite the ending take a minute and check <laughs> yeah. it out we think you like what you find but i'll need five people to join patreon this week american so. hauntings <laughs> you can also find your host on twitter instagram and facebook and if you have comments suggestions reviews or jokes Although we have be bought sure better to pass equipment. them along we have bought some better equipment. we're getting better equipment yes. season four will be a, yes. a totally new thing i appreciate all your emails about yeah, we the have. sound we've been working on it yeah we're so. working on it so thank you very much and until next time goodbye so long see you later bye